and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 26. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Outward unity is a very necessary thing, a very necessary thing. This past Friday marked uh, the game one of this uh, season for most high school uh, teams around here for football. And if, as we consider the football field, unity is important. It's not only important as a team practice during the week and then comes to a game that they, they execute each of these plays in unison and on time and in a right manner so that they can excel and win a game. But it's also important that they appear or look the same and that's in the form of a uniform outward appearance is necessary be very difficult if you were to go down the road here and go to panther stadium and watch a game and both teams had orange and white uniforms on be very difficult to see your baby there playing on the field or distinguishing between the defense and the offense be difficult if you were to go to Wildcat Stadium and see a maroon and white team against another maroon and white team or, or black and gold against another black and gold. Unity is necessary. Outward unity. And that's really what we're looking at today. The unity of the church of Christ must be unified. And it's the outward appearance that produces great fruit, that brings people to salvation through the unity of the church. We're finishing our little mini-series here in John 17, also called the High Priestly Prayer, and we've looked at this at three different places. The verse, five verses, looks at Christ's one petition for himself, for the Father to glorify him. We saw his hour and his glory and his gift and work all accomplishing, all looking to his future glory as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Last week we looked as he begins to change and look to the petitions and prayers that he has for his disciples. Verses 6 through 19, we saw the disciples and those distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Christ. And we looked at the Lord's petition for, for the security and protection and purity of the church and here we look at the church the church of christ is the title of this message and it's very important to remember our context he is just hours away from being arrested hours away from being accused and sentenced to a brutal death on a cross hours away from absorbing the punishment for his people hours away and here's this prayer he finishes his prayer and we'll look first at the unity of the church let's look at verses 20 through 23 I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them as you loved me. First, we see these future believers. This is the church of Christ. This is the body of believers. This is the room here, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You make up this prayer right here, those who have believed the apostles' word. What a comforting thing for that disciple that night. To listen to their Savior, their, their teacher, their master, their Lord, pray this prayer and already communicate their successfulness. There will be those who believe their words and we're a testimony to that. The body of Christ is a testimony of that. And it's valuable, precious to Jesus Christ. So much so that the bulk of this prayer is directed towards the saints the body of Christ, those who would repent and believe in him. This is what he's dedicated the bulk of this prayer to. So valuable that Brother Rick read a passage that talks about he sacrificed his very life for the body. He loves the body of Christ, sanctifies the body of Christ. And that message continues on. The word believe here emphasizes emphasizes a continual belief. A continual belief. So these are those that believe on Jesus Christ for faith, in faith, in salvation. And they keep on believing. So all the things that we looked at in verses 6 through 19 could still be applied here. The Lord keeping them, sanctifying them, preserving them till the end is the body of Christ. That message keeps going out. Paul writes, how then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The mission continues. The body of Christ is faithful to this message. Faithful to continue to proclaim the teaching of the apostles or the the, the gospel the apostles preached and proclaimed. Faithful with that. But here is the meat of our passage. This perfect unity. This oneness amongst the body of Christ. This oneness here. See, unity cannot be obtained naturally. Can't be attained naturally. You can just look back at your life, consider your family unit and the disunity that you've seen there. You can look back at your high school years and your junior high years and your elementary years. There are different groups that can't get along on the playground. You think about your work environment, there's disunity there. You think about our school boards, there's disunity there. You think about our political world, there's disunity there. Unity can't be obtained, pure and right unity can't be obtained outside of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what he's getting here. He wants unity amongst the believers amongst the church, and we see this represented in the example, the model in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're that model for us, the Trinity. Though we, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned, he's the one that continues the task of revealing, which we saw here at the end of our passage. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that unity is our example and model for our unity amongst believers in Jesus Christ. 
It's a mysterious thing at times, but there are things that we can declare and state about the Trinity. We can state, first off, that God is three persons. God is three persons in the sense that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. There's three distinct members of the Trinity, of the Godhead. In verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. They share a love, they share the glory, but there are two distinct persons there. We see this also in John 14, 26 with the Spirit. Jesus says, but the helper or advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your remembrance, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity. But we need to know also that each person is truly God. We see throughout the Old Testament and here in the New Testament, as Jesus prays to his Father that there is the sovereign God and Lord that's controlling all things, we don't deny his deity. But what about the Son? Flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is probably one of the most sound and clear explanation of Christ's deity. It was demonstrated through his whole ministry and the fact that he could tell a storm to stop. The response of a disciple is, who is this? It's God in flesh, truly God. But in John 1, 1 through 4, John doesn't want his listeners to be confused or unaware, but this Word, which is Jesus Christ, He is God. Let's look at these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is God, truly God. He's truly man and truly God, but what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is truly God as well. We know from Matthew 28, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But another example of the deity of the Holy Spirit is found in Acts 5. When one individual thought he had deceived the disciples, the disciples knew Peter calls him out and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not your, at your own disposal? Why is it that you have not contrived this deed in your heart? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, all truly God. Now if we were to stop here, we would be polytheistic. We would have many gods that we worship, three. But the Bible doesn't let us get away with that, does it? 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, probably one of the most well-recognized verses for a Jew of the day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. God is one. The three different persons are one in essence. God is one being. They're not three gods, but one God. That is the unity that Christ calls us to. That is the unity that Christ calls us to, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Though a mystery, it's obvious. They all have the same motive. John MacArthur lists a few things that they share in their unity. Same motive for their glory to be proclaimed and displayed amongst their creation. The same mission to see uh, see the individual come to faith and repentance and, and the same truth, their very words. We are also caught into this oneness there. So we have the example in the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, but we also find our source in them for unity. Our source for unity is found in them. He says that they also may be in us. Well, how are we sourced to unify, to be one? John describes this as fellowship with the Father and with the Son in 1 John 1, 3. Fellowship with one another. This fellowship speaks to a very close relationship with one another and with the Father and the Son. To put it another way, We love what God loves. We love what Christ loves. We hate what God hates. Consider for a moment a list of those things that God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord amongst the brother. The Lord hates division, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord loves peace and unity amongst the body of Christ. The New Testament is not silent about this. Paul consistently is writing about unity amongst one another, forgiving one another in Ephesians and Colossians, being patient with one another, In Philippians, considering others' interests of more value and more important than yourself. Jesus loves peace because he brought peace between us and the Father by taking on our sin and punishment, by bringing us back into right relationship with him. He loves peace and he calls for us to have peace amongst one another. Our unity 
is very necessary. Very necessary. Those of us in Christ here at Westwood Baptist Church, our unity amongst one another should be so very important to us. It's demonstrated in Jesus' prayer. It's demonstrated throughout the scripture. Unity and peace amongst one another is essential to our calling as the body of Christ. So there's questions that we must ask ourselves. Am I at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Man, there's countless stories after stories of dysfunctional churches with the backbiting and the gossip and just the right out hatred of other individuals. That is not a mark of the body of Christ. He calls us to peace and unity and oneness. So do you have a grudge or bitterness against a fellow believer in Jesus Christ? Is there relationships in this room that are seared because reconciliation hasn't been sought? Shouldn't be so amongst us. We should strive for peace amongst one another. Pursue it passionately with urgency knowing he's called us to unity with one another. Are you the one in the wrong? Have you sought forgiveness from your brother or sister in Christ? Mike Smith, the former director of mission for our association several years back, wrote a book on conflict in churches. He mentions during his time as a director of missions and as a pastor and as a recently resigned, uh, retired from uh, Jacksonville College as a president, many, many church business meetings. The conflict was great. He said, very seldom was it ever over theological issues, but it was over the color of the carpet or other minute things that we get so caught up with. He shares a list in his book about the predictability of conflict. He says, conflict is predictable during the Christmas and Easter seasons because it is a busy time and people are tired. Conflict is predictable during stewardship or budget promotion. Conflict is predictable when adding staff. Conflict is predictable during changes in the style of worship or organization. Conflict is predictable during the pastor's absence, vacation, or mission trip. Conflict is predictable during changes in the pastor's family. For when there is a, uh, a child born, he's spending too much time with his family. He cannot control his own household, are also said. Conflict is predictable during generational change in the church, such as when there is an increase in the young couples. Conflict is predictable during the completion of a new building. It's predictable during a change in membership. Conflict is predictable during the time between pastors. Conflict is predictable. And as long as we have not been called up to glory, conflict will occur, but we do not allow it to fester into disunity. But we pursue peace amongst one another. Secondly, we see the testimony of the church, which is the purpose of this. He mentions this 
twice here. What we say, how we proclaim the gospel, is supported by our unity and peace amongst one another. How? We've already mentioned it. We, we have different personalities in this room, different skill set, different hobbies and interests, different courts amongst us, that you get a group this size, you're bound to have differences. We're bound to have opinions. But there is a supernatural unity and oneness amongst ourselves that makes us different from a school board, that makes us different from a, 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 a sports team. It goes outside of us. Jesus said to his disciples just a few chapters back, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, you have love for one another. A disciple of Christ loves the church of Christ. Loves one another with all their differences and hobbies and all the other things that could stack up against an individual. When they come about part of this body of Christ, they're your brother and sister in Christ. And you look past that and you look to the fact that you were called to unify, to be one, to have peace amongst one another. That's what distinguishes us from the world. Unity, biblical unity, is unworldly, unheard of. But he calls us to this. What do we have to lose? Our testimony. What do we have to lose? Our testimony. How are we unified? We are unified around the words of the apostle, the word of God. Here at Westwood Baptist Church, we have a doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That doctrinal statement, we unify around that statement. We unify around the gospel message through grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone that is one is saved. We unify around the word of God as being the ultimate authority, all that we need as the body of Christ. We unify around these truths. This is what we stand on here at Westwood. So it's important that we stop for a moment and consider something, kind of a disclaimer, if you will. Though we are to pursue peace, though we are to pursue oneness, this does not mean two things. Number one, that we don't address sin in the body of Christ. Number one, that we do not confront our brother when there's unrepentant sin in his life. Now, there's a manner by which this occurs. We see this outlined in Matthew chapter 18, but there is a manner in which that occurs, but we don't neglect sin that has been unrepentant in the body of Christ. I served with Josh Green, one of our church planners at a church down the road uh, before coming back to Westwood, and both his predecessor and mine both were dismissed, and there was sin that was involved. The first had stolen money from the church. It was brought to the church's attention, and it brought a great deal of conflict. Some of the church believed the pastor. Some of the church believed the leadership there. 
caused a split in the church. My predecessor, the the youth pastor, he went on to commit sexual sin. And because of the conflict that arose with the pastor that left, the leadership there said, we won't bring this before the church, we'll just ask him to leave. Quietly. It got out into the community that this individual had caused a great deal of issues and had a great deal of sin, and it distorted that church's testimony because sin was not addressed but shoved underneath a rug. The church of God should be pure. He prays for our sanctification and holiness. It's not that we don't address sin, but we pursue peace amongst one another in the midst of that. Also, number two, does it mean that we don't correct false teaching? If there's error that arises in the teaching here at Westwood Baptist Church, it should be addressed. Amongst our fellowship with other churches, associating churches in, in our convention, it should be addressed. We stand for truth. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So our foundation is the truth. So we stand and we correct when it comes. And these are difficult time and peace is often difficult to achieve, but it can happen in the body of Christ. And it does happen. It does happen. So in application, I hope that you're pursuing peace amongst your brother and Christ. And I hope you're not bringing discord to the body of Christ. One very practical preventative that you might consider is praying for one another. In the back and right outside on the table, we have several copies of our church directory. We don't just call it our church directory, we call it our prayer guide. And there's pictures of most of us in there, but in the name there's a list of names of all of us who are members of Westwood Baptist Church. Pray for one another. Go before the Lord and intercede on the behalf of one another. If you have a brother or sister in Christ in this room that it is difficult for you to love, Lift them up before the Lord because it's a lot harder to allow a a relationship to remain seared when there isn't prayer or when there is prayer. Pray for one another. Pursue peace amongst one another. If you hear the rumblings of gossip, put it out. Don't stand for that. If you hear someone bad-mouthing your brother or sister in Christ amongst this body, don't stand for that. Build one another up. We have a testimony to this community. We have a gospel to proclaim. And that gospel that we proclaim is supported by our unity amongst one another. We pursue unity amongst one another. Lastly, in closing, the love within the church. Look how Jesus ends this prayer. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What sweet words he prays on the behalf of his church. This love kind of sandwiched on both sides. This love that the father has before the foundation of the world for his son. That love that they have for one another he's going to have in us. It's a beautiful thing. But what does he care about? It says his desire is for us to see his future glory. The glory of Christ. Now we've discussed this in verses 1 through 5. The glory of God, the glory of Christ is a very important part of the Christian life. It's our very purpose as his creation, as people to bring glory to God. But that future glory speaks to something just very practical. A resurrection that will happen. This is not it. Life is not 70, 80, 90 years on this earth and we're done. But we know if in Christ we have life ever after. We know that in Christ we have a time where we're going to be in the presence. And we get to praise him and enjoy him. He prays for this and God is faithful. He will see this through. We one day will behold his glory if you are in Jesus Christ. One day we will be before him. We'll have a song to sing. That is something we hope for. That love he places in us. We desire to be with him one day. We desire and long to be with him one day. To see him with our eyes. We long for the things that are described in Revelation where there's no need for a son because he is the light. We long for that time where nothing will distract us such as tear and pain and suffering. We long for that. Until then, he's in us. That love has been placed in us. He's continuing to reveal the Father to us. The Holy Spirit plays that part. And as we go to the Word of God, we're, we're made known and more sure of who He is and our need for Him. This keeps going, but there's a distraction there. We lose sight when the world becomes valuable to us. We lose sight when we pursue the things of this world. When money is more important, when our name and fame is more important, when a career is more important, when pleasure seeking and the things this world has to offer is more important, we lose sight of that love within, that future hope, that future resurrection. We're called to put those things aside, die to ourselves, and look to Christ. It's a very beautiful prayer. This prayer, really, in one, one sense, D.A. Carson mentions that it summarizes this whole gospel message the teachings up to this point. 
We see the things that are important to the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father, the glory to Christ, the revealing of the Father, his disciples, their preservation, their security, their sanctification, their, their unity, their testimony, and this future hope. This doesn't grow old for us in Christ Jesus. For those of us who have said, yes, he has sent his son Jesus who's called us to faith and repentance, this doesn't grow old for us. He has knit us together, none of us by accident, all of our personalities and skills to one here at Westwood Baptist Church. Pray that we cherish that. For the little one in here, for the older one in here, for the one that is outside looking in, meaning you have yet to come in faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The invitation is there. He's made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has accomplished the work and going to the cross. He has paid the debt. He went to the grave. He was resurrected. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The call is to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And for us in Christ, to keep remembering. Keep remembering what he's done. Here we're about to transition to the Lord's Supper. This is a, a beautiful time, the gospel on display for us. As we remember what Christ has done for us. Moments away in this chapter that we've been looking at. Moments away from drinking the cup of wrath. Sacrificing his own life for the sake of our sins. This table represents that and reminds us of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Calls us to renew our faith and repentance in him. Renew our commitment to one another. And to realize that we have a great hope in Jesus Christ. A future hope. So if you are a baptized believer, this table is for you this morning. This table is for you. This is an opportunity for us to look to Christ and remember all that he has done for us. So that means if there's children gathered here with us today that have not professed Christ nor been baptized, they are not allowed to partake of the table. But observe and see. If you're a guest with us here today, not a member at Westwood Baptist Church, you're invited to participate in this meal. If you're a member of an evangelical church that preaches the gospel of salvation that's by grace alone and faith alone, and Christ alone. And we would love for you to participate in this meal with us. If you'd be permitted to take this ordinance at your own church, you can receive it with us. Here in a moment as we examine ourselves, we take a moment to consider this past week, this past month, our lives. If there's any unrepentant sin, take that before the Lord. But if you see that you have unforgiveness for another or boldly living in unrepentant sin, 
you should not participate in this ordinance. Let's take a moment to go before the Lord, reflect, and pray before we take this meal.